Welcome to IEP Radio, a show dedicated to the education of all things indoor environmental quality related. And now here's your host, Michael Schrantz. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two on IEP Radio. Today's topic is going to be about air sampling versus dust sampling for mold, the debate. Uh, certainly a lot of topics, uh, discussions regarding what to do, how to do it when we're talking about sampling. Um, I'll tell you, before I... Um, kind of wrote the uh, bullet points for this particular uh, discussion, I realized that I really have to micromanage each one of these sections. Um, I, I was going to do a broader topic on uh, assessments and different types of sampling and when you would do this and when you would do that. And I just found that uh, four hours later and um, a lack of productive content or an attempt to do it, uh, I just couldn't put it together. So we're really going to try to focus uh, on this show, the ability to break down into micro topics. And right now, it's just more of the subject of are there advantages and disadvantages to air sampling versus dust sampling when we're talking about mold? And might there be a situation where you choose one or the other, that sort of thing? I thought I'd start with uh, sharing a couple things with you, particularly my screen. Um, there's different types of sampling out there. Um, we have, um, when we're talking about air samples first, a lot of us know about spore trap sampling. Uh, normally this is analyzed through direct examination or under a microscope. Uh, folks will come in with a pump. Uh, this is just an example of one. Um, and they'll collect air uh, in your home or office, usually for five to 10 minutes. And they'll get a result. Um, advantages, disadvantages, uh, probably the biggest advantage is uh, cost and ease of use, uh, ease of use meaning for the inspector. But one of the, um, well, more than one of the disadvantages, uh, there's a few is that you can't speciate the mold on these, it only is identified to a genus level. So if somebody comes back and says that we've taken a sample like this and it's uh, showing cladosporium, uh, we don't know the species. Now, there are arguments and interpretations. Um, in fact, I'll actually skip real quick and show you. There's a lot of good books out there, uh, field guide book for the determination of biological contaminants in environmental samples, second edition. Uh, by the AIHA um, bioaerosols book, Assessment and Control from 1999, still a great book and a reference. Even um, microorganisms in home environments and um, work environments, I have it right here, uh, great resources and uh, pulled a lot of the information um, in terms of citing stuff from these books uh, if you want to go back and take a look. But going back to spore trap sampling, um, you know, they don't speciate. And there'll be times where maybe someone feels that's not a needed, it's not appropriate. Um, who doesn't want more information? I mean, if we can speciate a mold, um, it might be able to show us a relationship between indoor and outdoor because the goal is we're looking for normal fungal ecology in the home, not mold-free. Uh, we want to um, see, does the environment inside that we're sampling reflect an environment that's only been impacted by mold from the outdoors? That would be normal fungal ecology. And of course, you have a variation of interpretation of samples, um, how they're even collected, how you can interpret them, the limitations of a sample. Have you ever had somebody come out with a spore uh, trap type of sample device, collect it, tell you that they didn't find anything and that you're okay? Not sure that they're qualified uh, to say that you're okay or not. And not finding anything in a spore trap sample doesn't necessarily mean that there's uh, no mold there because we talk about other issues um, when we get into issues of mold fragments. 
um, there are arguably a lot more mold fragments in the environment than there are a mold spore. In fact, this particular book right here, and if you go online and you'll read all about uh, fungal fragments and things like that, you'll find that there's uh, references uh, up to 320 times more presence of fragments uh, than there are spores. And there are other um, documents and publications out there that talk and discuss about this. And so, of course, the natural argument then would be is that if I do spore trap sampling, it could be a helpful tool. And it may actually help us detect concentrations of a mold that are uh, sourcing from inside. And I've seen that happen a number of times with these types of samples that I've collected. But for those who have chronic illness, we may miss it. We may not be able to detect the fragments because they don't detect fragments, not the fragments we're talking about, under a microscope. Imagine that mold spore busted up into 100 pieces. Um, that wouldn't be a recognizable thing under a microscope or certainly something that's not commercially analyzed. There's other options, though, right? We have um, culturing, uh, petri dish sampling, um, advantages, disadvantages. Well, it's going to be a little bit more expensive than um, uh, spore trap sampling. Uh, there's no speeding up the process. If you're going to have somebody do a culture, you just kind of have to wait. And sometimes you may have to wait anywhere from 7 to 14 days to get results. So if you're under a time crunch, which I would argue in this day and age, it feels like everybody is, uh, that might not be the best option. One of the other problems with this type of test is that what is it really looking at? It's looking at viable mold growth, mold that is able to grow on that particular auger that you're using in the Petri dish. So they have different augers. They have um, uh, uh, malt extrose uh, auger that's kind of more of a, a generic uh, overall uh, kind of captures a, a, the most amount of mold growth that may be viable and can grow on that particular auger. They have DG18, which is uh, a mixture designed to uh, help promote the growth of extrophilic type molds like Wollemia CB, things like that. Uh, they make mold um, augers that are designed for growth of like, say, hydrophilic molds like Stachybotrys, a cellulose auger or a cornmeal auger. The point is, is can you imagine how cumbersome and how costly it would be if you were going to do this type of sampling in the field? You'd have to bring different plates or um, uh, send off multiple samples for uh, m multiple different analysis. And if the mold is present in the environment and it is coming from an indoor source, and it is able to grow, then maybe you can glean that there's evidence of an active source growing. And that's why some folks uh, that I know who do this type of sampling use it. Uh, the argument is that if there's a spike or a trend, maybe it's an order of magnitude higher than an outdoor uh, ecology. So you have control samples that you're constantly collecting outside to reference. And yes, there's limitations with control sampling and you have to consider the time of year and the season and do you have snow on the ground that could artificially lower your outdoor control sample and how do you interpret it? But plainly, these samples, you know, can help you answer the question of viability of the molds that are even able to grow. And that's the other issue is there's competition among these different species, even with bacteria. Uh, they'll try to put uh, different um, agents in the auger to help minimize uh, growth of species that they don't want to have grow, but it's not a foolproof plan. And sometimes uh, the argument would be, well, what if I have a mold that's present in higher concentration, and maybe it is affecting my health, but it doesn't respond well to growing on this particular auger, this particular Petri dish, and instead another mold that may be present, but just not in high quantity or concentration ends up overgrowing on that particular auger, you could get a false negative uh, for the mold that maybe ultimately is affecting you. 
there's other issues. Um, this book um, right here, going back to the microorganisms, uh, mentions that you know it's not just about mold spores that can um, grow. Uh, there are certain parts of the mold itself, the mycelium, the fragments um, that could grow as well. But there's a lot of the parts of the mold, if they're fragmented, that will not will not grow on a petri dish sample. So it's very limited. It's not going to identify a lot of the fragments, especially if they're not viable. It's not going to. It's likely not going to provide a the perfect picture of everything that's growth, uh, growing or able to grow on the petri dish. And there's also these other issues of competing microorganisms. Um, that get in the way and prevent the growth of a mold that maybe you do want to know about. Which leads us to a third type of sampling, which I commonly use, which is qPCR or quantitative polymerase chain reaction. And this is a type of sample, again, we're focusing on the air right now, where an individual might come out and um, collect air for a length of time. Um, I've seen two hour, four hour, eight hour, uh, even 24 hour air samples. And they'll collect it on a filter much like this, a media that has a filter versus an impaction slide that you would have on this type of sample, a spore trap. And uh, that sample sent off for analysis using uh, this qPCR technology. I'm not uh, pretending to act as a spokesman for this uh, an, uh, method, but it's it's looking for the DNA ultimately in um, the mold that may be present in the air. And even if there's a fragment that has a little bit of DNA and it's one of the molds that are being looked at in this panel, oftentimes when somebody sends a sample off like this for analysis, whether it's an air sample or a dust sample, they're asking the lab to run a specific panel for specific species of molds uh, for analysis. And it's arguably uh, a lot more sensitive able to pick up those fragments, able to detect mold, whether it's alive or dead, giving us um, what is felt uh, to be a better picture of what truly is in the environment. Um, but the issue is usually, usually cost. I mean, this type of uh, sample analysis uh, it commonly can run 10 times more expensive than a spore trap sample. Um, I would argue it's relative and what's the cost of your health and what are the questions that you're trying to answer ultimately? Because I'm throwing out all these different options. You have direct examination, you have uh, culturing, uh, petri dish sampling for viability of, of mold that may be there present. You have qPCR, which kind of can give you like a fuller picture, uh, dead or alive. It does not differentiate between the two, um, but it is looking for that DNA in the sample that's being collected. And then it's reporting it back usually in spore equivalents per milligram of dust or per cubic meter, if that's the um, particular um, unit of measurement. The issue becomes as well, it, you know, is there the perfect solution? I mean, if every one of these samples costs 10 cents, um, maybe you would do all three of them and you could answer different questions um, with qPCR. Uh, you could answer, you know, wow, forensically, we're, we're, we're being able to better detect the fragments that perhaps um, culturing is not able to detect Certainly the stuff that's not viable, it can't grow. Um, spore trap sampling will flat out miss, that sort of a thing. If I do Petri dish sampling though, maybe that will give me an indication of an indoor source. Um, perhaps you find that a particular species of Aspergillus or Penicillium or something to that effect is growing and it shows up in colony forming units an order of magnitude higher than the outdoor control sample. And you look at your qPCR sample and you're like, oh, wow, there happen to be some species of the same type, or maybe it's the exact type that is also elevated. So there's a correlation and it's able to say, well, not only is this mold elevated, but perhaps it's coming from an indoor source 
Um, and then maybe spore trap sampling helps us with more generic things like, well, one of the downfalls with um, qPCR sampling, and, and I would argue it's probably more uh, of an issue with dust sampling, which we'll get into in a moment, is inhibition, um, the ability for uh, something in the environment. Uh, take rust, for example, metal, uh, you know, uh, corrosion, and you accidentally collected a sample could give you a false negative and perhaps uh, a spore trap sample may be able to, um, it's more supportive or of ancillary data to support a finding from the other two. Oftentimes, the reason why people end up doing the spore trap sampling, as I mentioned in the beginning, is this cost. It's just cheaper. And we don't have the mold police to tell us this number is too high. Um, uh, this number is too low and everyone is genetically uh, uh, different and unique. And a lot of times the level and the type of sample you do depends quite frankly on your particular illness or concern. If you're somebody who is worried about a pathogenic mold that may grow and create disease in your body, you may be wanting to focus at least on uh, culturing or Petri dish sampling uh, so that you can get a, a, an idea of what may be present and what may be apt to grow, especially something that's thermophilic or able to grow at uh, body temperature. So there's a lot of that goes into it. Uh, switching gears uh, real quick, wanted to talk to you about the dust sample now. So we've kind of given you an overview of uh, what air samples can do. Dust samples are typically done um, to give us history. Uh, what was in the air typically will settle out. Consider the environment. It's sedentary for the most part. People aren't running. You don't have windmills or fans running nonstop. Grandma's not running through the house with an electric leaf blower. It, things will settle over time. And we have those studies. We understand settling rates. of. Um, we have settling rates. I think Dr. Harriet Burge um, uh, did an article about how fast does a stachybotrys spore fall from one meter uh, from the, the ground in a sedentary lab setting. And it's about, I think it's about eight minutes. But the point is that we do understand that heavier particles will settle with gravity, gravity over the time. And that begs the question, you know, is an air sample the most appropriate tool to give us an idea of average exposure? See, our industry, uh, indoor air quality, came from uh, different angles of concern, a lot of it being industry. Uh, think about OSHA, or occupational health and safety. And you have uh, people who the primary exposure uh, were chemicals, things that would diffuse and remain in the air. And so air samples were felt a better indicator of that exposure, not to mention that it's what you're breathing. People, when they think of dust sampling, they're like, well, I'm not sniffing the ground, I'm not licking the dirt, things of that nature. And that, that's not the purpose of the dust sample. It's, it's meant to give you an idea of this is a history of what was in the air uh, that has settled out over the time. But just like anything, it's fraught with pitfalls, just like air sampling. There's no one perfect device. Um, with, with dust sampling, I have done uh, direct examination, just like you would do with a spore trap sample. I have done culturing of a dust to see if there are certain species that um, are uh, predominant to indicate perhaps a, an indoor source compared to outside. And I've certainly done um, probably in the thousands now of qPCR sampling uh, for dust samples. And... I know there's this thing about ERMI versus hurts me versus, um, you know, that, those types of metrics. We're going to save that for another podcast. In fact, I, I believe the next podcast uh, that I've already done was with Dr. Richie Shoemaker, so we'll get into that. But at the end of the day, um, it, it really is an, an, an art beyond the science because one of the pitfalls is that how do we know what the normal dust buildup uh, and what the mold concentration should be for a particular environment? Um, you will typically have high counts of molds that are settled out. We just don't know how to sharply define high. 
time of season can affect that. Living conditions, reservoirs in the home, carpeting, um, duck work, um, poor cleaning habits, active lifestyle, kids, pets, um, that sort of thing can all affect the dust loading and concentration of a normal of uh, a variety of mold species that aren't always easy to look at and go, well, clearly you have an indoor mold source. But I can tell you from personal experience that uh, when it comes to interpreting dust samples, uh, you do look for trends. Um, it, my version, I can safely say that I don't think that it's normal to have uh, an extremely high count. Uh, if you're taking a look, for example, there's a laboratory, Mycometrics in New Jersey, where they will categorize a dust sample through direct examination, and they'll use the words trace, few, many, numerous, and it goes from there. When you see things like a few or many, that's not normal to find stacky or catonium on the surfaces in my experience. And I've sampled across the country. It's usually not normal to find that. Are there exceptions? Yeah, there are. I mean, we've, we've come across homes that have had a bunch of wood chips and gardening in their front yard, and there was a high count of catonium present, and that was being brought into the home, settling out uh, heavier um, type of mold, more stickier, hydrophilic in nature. And, and it, you know, it was hard to differentiate. Is this indicating an indoor source? Is there any history or visual evidence inside of the home to support this finding? Um, it's not a perfect science. It's really understanding the physiology of the mold. It's understanding the local environment. It's understanding what an, an average may look like within a, um, a reasonable rationale. And looking at the data, maybe compared to outdoor control samples, uh, maybe it's an outdoor surface dust sample. It's a, maybe it's an air sample compared to another air sample uh, from a standpoint of orders of magnitude. And this is one of the trickiest things because one of the other things I notice about people who want to get into debates about interpreting these samples is that they want it to be more like a murder case where you have to provo uh, uh, prove to an, an enormous level of certainty that something is there or isn't. And it's never been that. It's, always, it's more like Sherlock Holmes. It's always been a matter of saying, does the reasonable evidence when you look at it all conclude that there tends to be or is, an, in fact, an, a local indoor source? And, um, you know, sometimes we get really lucky and we're able to do testing and we're able to even zero in and find an actual source that's hidden. But it's not always straightforward. Sometimes um, the, the dust sample, certainly when you're taking ambient samples indoors, you're, you're doing air uh, or dust sampling, it usually doesn't point at where the source may be coming from. It may be able to identify uh, zones um, because typically, um, when you're dealing with a larger mold spore or heavier fragments, it's not a homogeneous thing that diffuses evenly like a chemical may in a home. It's going to settle out. So if the master bedroom shower has a mold problem, it's not uncommon to see it look more like a ground zero situation where highest concentrations are in that area and there's some sort of a linear digression at the further you get away. And, and, and I'm, I'm skimming over uh, many topics that deserve hours long, uh, months long discussion because there's nuances. And, and that's what makes this topic so difficult is the, the broad stroke question here is which one's better. And the answer is it depends on the question you're trying to answer. If you're looking for what is you're being exposed to now, you may be finding that an air sample can help you with that. Quite frankly, I think you should be doing both. You should be taking a sample of the air and the surface dust because you're going to get a fuller picture of what may be going on in your home. And obviously, you want the most forensic sampling possible. So 
I would, I would love to tell you to uh, do qPCR culturing direct examination, but you may find that that's cost prohibitive. And many of us don't do that. We can't afford it. The, the, the clients would rather sell their home. And in the end, sometimes you're, you don't need all of that. Sometimes the visual evidence, the historic evidence leads us to an area or a source of a problem that thousands of dollars in sampling the air or surface dust either uh, doesn't address, doesn't identify, or is redundant. Uh, some of the reasons that we are sampling in an environment is to help those clients find uh, if there's a hidden source. Well, if we can point at a number of sources, like underneath that kitchen sink cabinet that has visible mold growth there, I don't need to necessarily sample that area unless the question is, I need to know what species it is. I need to, I need to prove it for legal reasons. Uh, unless there's some technicality like that, I don't need to spend thousands of dollars to sample to tell you that you should have that remediated because of the issues of exposure and some of the complications that we deal with, especially for those who have some sort of a environmentally acquired illness or a chronic disease, some level of exposure where low doses can cause an adverse health reaction. Um, let me see what else I got for you guys. Pretty much that's it. Um, I always ask the question for air and dust, you know, what question am I trying to answer? If you can get away with it, air and dust sampling is the way to go. You always want to work with an indoor environmental professional who's going to guide you through the process. It's complicated. It's not meant to be like a one-stop shop or something you can just call ahead. Drives me nuts when I hear people call up other IEPs and ask them what they it would cost to do sampling as if we already know what the problem is. It's, it's very frustrating. What's even more frustrating are the companies that actually give a price uh, because they're not showing the responsibility to go out and take a look at your home and assess it just like a, a clinician would assess your own health. And being able to, to say, well, this test could help us answer this, but here's the limitations and work with you, guide you like a captain on the seas to figure out what is going to be the optimal type of testing that we can do for you and still do it in a way that's not going to break the bank. Hope you enjoyed that. See you next time. The content of this show is for informational purposes and represents the sole opinion of the host and its interviewees only. Any reliance on the information provided in this show is done at your own risk. Additional opinions and or research may change our current view of the topics spoken in this show. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our own field experience, independent literature, or studies that support the topics discussed. This information should not be used to make conclusive decisions regarding your health or exposure. Ultimately, all questions and or concerns regarding your health should be addressed by a qualified physician. Additional exposure concerns and or questions pertaining to the health of your home or building should be addressed by qualified and on-site professionals. Any and all products and services discussed in this show should not be construed as a recommendation, endorsement, or guarantee that their use is appropriate for your situation. In short, we hope this information is of value to you, but please do not act upon it without actual and individual consultation and guidance by professionals who have taken the time and appropriate collection of data to assess your unique situation.